This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Chris Seedens, and today for Charles Feldman, kids are back in school in L.A., but there's no deal, no deal yet. So what's next? We're going to go in depth. A few dead otters have washed ashore in California, and it's got some wildlife experts a little concerned. We'll tell you why. More and more parents are taking care of their children financially. Adult kids, that is. We start, though, with the end of the LAUSD strike and what might happen next. Nicole Pfefferman is co-founder of the local group Parents Supporting Teachers. Nicole, thanks for joining us today on In-Depth. Uh, first of all, this this three-day strike action, it's now in the books. Kids back in classrooms. Doesn't appear that very much was accomplished. Uh, is it going to take another work stoppage to get something uh, settled, or, or can continued talks get it done? Hey, good afternoon. Um... Well, we actually feel like a lot was done. A lot was accomplished in these three days. You know, it was a ULP strike. So different than the strike that the teachers went on in 2019. And this strike was about the district engaging in illegal and disrespectful behavior against SEIU workers um, who've been in bargaining for nearly a year and who had just reached impasse. And what that means is that they were at the stage of bargaining where it just felt like nothing could be done anymore. And they were asking the state to come in and help mediate um, so that bargaining could continue. Uh, and what the strike accomplished was uh, it, it pressured our mayor into becoming part of this process. And she essentially has been uh, brokering a deal between SEIU and uh, the district, LAUSD. So they are busy at work bargaining today. They were busy at work bargaining yesterday. And, um, you know, SEIU has updated folks by saying that if they need to this weekend, they will continue bargaining as well. So we feel like we pushed everything in the right direction. You know, as far as labor actions go, uh, this worker strike was kind of, uh, I, I, I hate to use the word muted, but it's only because I can't think of a better one right now, but muted in the sense that this is going to be a three-day strike. This is a temporary thing just to show you what we can do. It's not an indefinite strike. We're out on strike until we get a deal, et cetera, et cetera. But then I think the teachers uh, deciding not to cross the picket line, taking part, added a little bit to the threat of how bad it can get for LAUSD because they're are negotiations with teachers coming up. Do you think that this three-day kind of preview of what a longer strike could look like and how much damage it could do it maybe convinces LAUSD to think twice and maybe uh, shake loose some more deals that they'll put on the table? Uh, I mean, well, I certainly hope that the flexing of um, education worker power has been helpful in letting the district know that that, that folks are serious. Um, SEIU members are the lowest paid workers in LAUSD. And for them to make the decision to lose out on three days of pay was really huge. I mean, it's it's a really tremendous sacrifice uh, on the part of these workers. And they wouldn't have done that unless they were desperate. So, you know, the teachers linking up and saying, we're going to honor these picket lines uh, was certainly was certainly a, a flex of power. and And one that I hope the superintendent and the school board take seriously as they move forward, um, completing SEIU bargaining and continuing with UTLA bargaining. The district had a number of 23% on the table. I know that the the workers were looking for 30. How close do you think they are to getting some kind of a deal done? Is, in other words, is this going to happen sometime, you think, in the next few weeks, or is this going to stretch on? Um, you know, 
the, that number has been tossed around in the media. And I, I want to make clear to your listeners that um, it's a little bit of a fuzzy math problem. Um, that number included a one-time bonus that wouldn't actually raise wages over time for workers. Uh, and remember, we're also talking about people who make on average about $20 an hour doing things like caring for our, our special education students, our, our most vulnerable students on campus, supervising children during recess, driving the bus to and from school every day safely, um, you know, functioning as custodians and sometimes schools as big as 2,000, 3,000 students. Um, so we see it as, you know, as these workers deserve more and, you know, whether it takes until tomorrow or whether it takes until Monday, we hope that the SCIU will settle with the district um, and I think that, you know, moving forward with UTLA bargaining, we can only hope that the math is less fuzzy and more clear and that everybody is bargaining in good faith with each other. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Nicole Pfefferman, co-founder of the uh, local group Parents Supporting Teachers, obviously behind the LAUSD workers uh, who have just come back off of a temporary strike. What happens down the road? Keep listening to KNX. Right now, though, wildlife experts worried about an unusual parasite, parasites that killed a few otters that have washed ashore here in California. There's concern it could infect other animals, maybe even humans. With us now is Dr. Karen Shapiro with the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. She was part of the research team looking into this. Dr. Shapiro, thanks for taking some time for us today. First of all, how concerned should we be about the possibility of infecting other animals and maybe even humans? Yeah, that's a great question. So this parasite is very clever. Toxoplasma can infect any warm-blooded animal, and that includes people. We know that the parasite is present here in California. It's a very ubiquitous and successful parasite. So I would say there certainly is a risk that uh, both animals and people can be exposed. Could it appear in Southern California, and uh, should we? Uh, does it does it come into some other seafood that we might eat? Yes, I believe that toxoplasma is prevalent all along our state, so it is certainly possible that people or animals, again, could be exposed. We have also done studies looking specifically for this parasite toxoplasma in different types of shellfish that both wildlife and people like to eat, so for example, mussels and oysters, and we do find evidence that the parasite can contaminate these shellfish. I would just add that if people are concerned, then cooking shellfish is a very reliable way of inactivating the parasite so we can protect our health by just making sure that the seafood has been cooked. Where would a parasite like this come from? Yeah, another great question. This is a really interesting parasite because it has evolved to only use cats as definitive hosts. So this means that both domestic cats, like our house pet cats, as well as wild felids, so in California we have bobcats and mountain lions, all of these types of cats can host the parasite where it can complete its life cycle and it produces these really tough eggs, they're called oocysts, that are then shed in the feces of cats and then we believe makes its way into the ocean after we have heavy rainfall events. So what's the effect uh, of this parasite? Uh, what does it have on, you talk about house cats, uh, how would you know if your house cat has it? Does it, does it uh, change the health any? And then how would you know if it's, if it's gotten inside you? 
Yeah, so most cats, um, like domestic house cats, have a relatively lower probability of getting the parasite if they're indoor and if they eat food that you can buy at the store. So the type of cat that we typically are more concerned about are cats that live outside and have access to rodents or birds where the parasite can uh, infect these as intermediate hosts. If people are concerned about cats and toxoplasma, um, they can take their cat to the veterinarian and we can perform an antibody test. So this is a blood test to look if a cat has been exposed. I will just add that most cats have absolutely no clinical signs and they can live with toxoplasma and be completely healthy for their entire lives. The issue that we're concerned about is a fairly short period of time, about uh, one to two weeks, when cats that are infected can then shed the parasites and then be, uh, help transmit the disease, the parasite, either to other animals, wildlife, or people. So that's really the period of time that we're more, most concerned about and, in cats. And, and how would it make, uh, make a human being sick? What kind of symptoms would one have? So similar to cats, most people who are infected will have absolutely no signs, or they might have very mild flu-like illness. When we do become concerned, uh, there's two types of populations and people that we worry about. So one is pregnant women. So women may have heard about this parasite as the cat litter parasite. So women who are pregnant and become exposed to the parasite for the first time can pass on the infection to their fetus or unborn baby. And there could be very serious uh, effects on the newborn. It can lead to miscarriage or late-term abortion. It can also lead to disease called congenital toxoplasmosis in the baby when it's born. And then the other uh, population we're worried about are immunocompromised individuals. So, for example, people who, uh, who have AIDS or are being treated for cancer with uh, chemotherapy, in those individuals, once the immune system is weakened, if you've been previously infected, the parasite can kind of come out of its hiding places in the muscle and brain and then cause very serious disease and potentially even death. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Karen Shapiro from the uh, UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Watch out for those parasites. Coming up, if you have a grown child, do you help them out with money? If you do, you're far from alone, and it might be a sign of a bigger problem. Right now, though, the Pentagon says the U.S. has retaliated uh, against a suspected drone attack that killed an American contractor and hurt five U.S. troops and uh, another person in Syria. And with us now is Aaron David Miller, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and former State Department Middle East analyst. Thank you so much for joining us today pleasure. So uh, what's the upshot of all this? I know that uh, this is, I, I assume, what they call a proportional response and that, you know, tensions are already high in the area. We don't we don't want to ratchet them up, but we also at the same time have to send a message. Is that the, the proper way to look at this? Uh, yeah, I mean, just to set it in context, you've had at least 78 attacks, according to Pentagon sources, since January of 2021 against uh, or by pro-Iranian militias in Syria and and Iraq against uh, Kurdish forces or um, American uh, bases um, and and, uh, our deployments there. So I think what is unusual about this is that, uh, as in December 2019, when a contractor was killed, 
in the previous administration, and um, the response was to carry out four or five attacks in Iraq and Syria. This one actually worked. The New York Times is reporting that um, the air defense capacity of this particular base in eastern Syria, Syria was not operational at the time. Now, whether or not these pro-Iranian militias, this one in Syria, had intelligence of that fact, uh, or whether or not there was some breakdown in maintenance, unclear. But um, we responded, essentially, the Biden administration responded, essentially, because you had a contractor killed and at least five American uh, troops wounded, two that had to be medevaced uh, and cared for in American facilities in Iraq. So I, I think this does reflect partly business as usual, but also a kind of heightened tension, obviously, among the Israeli-U.S.-Iranian triangle, not just over these pro-Iranian militias, but clearly also over an unconstrained Iranian nuclear program. You know, with, with heated tensions in so many areas around the world right now, how concerned should the typical American be about what's happening over there? How heated could this get? If you're talking about, I mean, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm not the uh, oracle at Delphi, and predicting predicting stuff in the Middle East is always a hazardous business. Um, I think the prospects of a major confrontation that could cause plunging oil. If you're talking about how concerned an, uh, an American would be, me or you, just the average Joe who's driving in their car right well, now, or, or or me or you. The reality right. is uh, a major conflict that could ca- cause rising oil prices and plunging financial markets and a major regional confrontation um, could occur over one issue, and that is Iran's nuclear, uh, putative nuclear weapons aspirations. I don't think right now, and even for the foreseeable future, uh, such a conflict or regional war is possible. But as you look at what could trigger one, uh, it really is that. And... um, Right now, there doesn't appear to be any sort of diplomatic way uh, to contain. The Iranians are enriching enriching uranium at what is close to 90 percent. Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Chiefs, uh, testified before Congress that Iran, if it decided to weaponize, and all the intelligence services suggest it has not made that decision, but if if it chose to weaponize it, could do so within two months. Uh, give think, us uh, some quick context here uh, before we run out of time. What are Americans doing in that area in Syria? What's their job? 900 deployed Americans, primarily there for on a counterterrorism mission against uh, the remnants of al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. 2,500 in Iraq, again, to help bring a measure of stability as we go through the 20th anniversary of the Iran, Iran, Iraq, uh, the Iraq War. Iraq is not terribly stable. So that that that's the mission. Um, I think a minimum deployment for um that's quite important important for maximum return. All right, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. That is uh, Aaron David Miller, is senior fellow at the Carnegie uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, also a former State Department Middle East analyst. You're listening to KNX in depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Chris Seedens. 
A big week for investigations into former President Trump. It's kind of hard to keep track of all of them. Uh, As you recall, he said uh, uh, not too long ago that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday of last week, but uh, obviously he was not. The grand jury in New York now set to take his case up next week. This comes as things heat up in the Mar-a-Lago documents case and the January 6th case. David Katz is a criminal defense attorney, former federal prosecutor. Uh, David, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be with you. First of all, uh, today, the president, the former president, posted on his social media site a warning, uh, quite a warning. He, he warned of potential death and destruction if he is, in fact, indicted. In your opinion, is an indictment imminent in New York, or is there still a chance the grand jury decides not to indict? I think an indictment in New York, in the state court by the DA, uh, regarding the Michael Cohn, the hush money payoff, I think that that is much more likely than not. I think they've gone this far. They set up security provisions. So I think it was just a matter of whether it's going to be next week or the week after. Trump uh, did call an exculpatory witness, and I think they feel they need to mop up a little bit, maybe call a rebuttal witness after that. Um, but I think that one is going to happen and fairly soon. You know, people have some doubts about it. If I could just digress for a minute. There are three kind of issues in the case which trouble people. One is, of course, the optics of whether it makes him look like a martyr, because it's probably the weakest of the four criminal investigations against him that we're hearing a lot about. But also there's an issue about the statute of limitations, which is thorny. It's a seven-year-old event. There's a five-year statute of limitations. There may be some ways to try to toll it. And the last one is if it ends up being a misdemeanor, I call that the misdemeanor that roars. You know, if you're going to charge an ex-president for the first time, in American history, you don't want it to end up being a mere misdemeanor because it's not going to roar that much. And it's also not going to bar him from taking office. You know, the impeachment, had he been convicted by the Senate, that would have barred him from holding office. But these charges, especially the state court charges, are not going to bar him from being president again if he were to win that in 2024. They wouldn't bar him from running. They wouldn't bar him from taking office. Uh, yeah, Chris alluded to uh, some of the uh Social media postings that uh, Trump has made, uh, quite a bit of them uh, as as we close and close to something here. And I think some look at those and say uh, Trump is obviously uh, a little rattled by this. Uh, and some of the some of the postings are not outright threats, but they're what we call stochastic terrorism. Some people call it stochastic terrorism. And that goes back to way back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, King Henry II saying, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? And then one of the king's uh, group of people did. They they killed the guy. And basically uh, he absolved himself by saying, I never told him to do that. Uh, some of these threats seem to strike some people as a little over the line. And if I made... Social media posts like those against a public official, I'm pretty sure I would get a less than friendly visit from Secret Service or somebody in law enforcement. How are those threats playing, especially in light of the fact that uh, Alvin Bragg, the the DA in this case, has gotten a threatening letter saying that he's going to be killed and it contains some white powder? Well, that letter is not from Trump, and I'm very concerned, too, about the threats that he's making and the incitation, the instigation, uh, because there's obviously a tiny group of his followers who are very mentally unstable, and it's very troubling. We all remember the attack on CNN when they had to vacate the offices, and we remember January 6th. Um, And so that's one of the reasons that people are very concerned that Merrick Garland hasn't moved faster. You know, he now has this special prosecutor. Um, Jack Smith, who seems to be moving with alacrity, 
But a lot of people do fault Merrick Garland being Biden's attorney general for not having moved on the January 6th, you know, between Trump not tamping it down for over three hours. A lot of people think waiting to see whether it succeeded or failed and only once he knew he had a failed coup and not a successful coup that wrongly kept him in power did he actually act over three hours later, plus his incitations then. And so the feeling is that if you let him get away, you know, if you give somebody an inch, they'll take a mile. If you let the camel's nose into the tent, they'll take over the whole tent. And the people who think that these are threats like that, um, who will rid me of this terrible DA? You know, he hasn't made those threats against uh, attorney general or the special prosecutor, or he'd have uh, federal agents uh, visiting him immediately. You thought they came to Mar-a-Lago fast before, which they didn't. They would come to Mar-a-Lago very fast if he made those kind of threats against the federal official. But for better or worse, Bragg is a state official. He's a local official. David, we're very tight on time, but if you could look into your crystal ball for just a moment, what kind of a timeline might you see when it comes to the Mar-a-Lago documents case and the January 6th case? Are we still talking many months? I need a quick answer, please. I think the Mar-a-Lago will be several months, but I think Trump will be charged for it. His own attorney just had to take the stand today in federal court. I think the insurrection case will actually get rolling, and I think they'll charge people higher up, whether it's high up as Trump. I don't know, because there's only a year, year and a half before the next election. I think Georgia will produce state charges uh, against um, some of the other people, like Meadows maybe, but I don't think it'll go up to Trump in the first round. So I think by the election, by the primary season, I don't think Trump will be convicted of anything, and I'm certain that by the time of the election, he won't have his convictions and his appeals handled. He'll be able to run for office. If he wins, he wins. And if people don't want him to win, they should vote against him, but not wait for the legal system to somehow disqualify him. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, David Katz, criminal defense attorney and former federal prosecutor. If you have an adult child, does he or she still live at home? If they do, do they help out with the bills at least? A uh, new survey from Savings.com finds nearly half of American parents with adult kids continues to support them financially. Mark Rylance is a financial planner in Newport Beach. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, my pleasure. So how much, me. how much money are we talking about here? How much do the average parents spend uh, uh, help their kids out with? Well, you know, according to this this report, um, it says about, what, $1,400 a month. Wow. Which is mind-blowing to me. I, I did not have those parents. yeah right well you want to help your kids obviously in any way you can but how might this mess up the parents retirement plans well you know it's um interestingly enough i just got back from a you know four city college tour with my son late last night and so uh you know once i'm through college i'm going to be kind of in the same boat and you know what we typically see is that's when the savings for retirement really kicks into high gear is once you get the last kid out of school and um, out of the house and you're no longer spending on them so obviously that's fourteen hundred dollars that that's not going towards savings um there was i was trying to think why you know another thing why this could be happening um as to why they can maybe afford this without you know uh, curbing their spending and, and i think one part is because everybody's refinanced their houses with these low mortgages so they they're still not being as taxed as as some might think yeah you know speaking of which uh with the uh, mortgage rates going back up is that going to kind of curtail this well certainly for for uh for the uh 
those who don't have a house. I mean, the, again, the parents are probably refinanced. They're probably has a, have a low mortgage payment. But I recently did a client webinar, and one of the stats that I had, I'm looking at right here, is the U.S. median housing payment went from 29% in 2000 to 46% of disposable income. So almost half of people's disposable income is going towards housing. And so for us, it's very common now to do planning with parents, um, your retirement planning and, and weaving in how they're going to help kids, you know, afford uh, housing, especially in Southern California, which is really difficult, as, as you all know. What might have been, what type of advice might you have for parents helping out their kids? Is a repayment plan uh, something they should be looking at or maybe just have them come over, do some household chores, water the, water the grass, wash the car? You know, I, I, you know, it's I don't see an easy out on this. And we've had lots of conversations with uh, with with parents. I, I think you just have to have a respectful conversation and set uh, certain milestones. OK, you're not paying anything right now, but within three months, you're paying this and then six months, you're paying that. And, you know, when when I was a kid, you know, graduated school, um, I couldn't wait to get out of this, the house. I, I think one of the one of the problems is people's you know, real disposable income after inflation and all these other uh, costs they have is, uh, you know, is declining. It's not in, you know, it's not uh, it's not going up. You know, to widen the picture out a little bit here, uh, mm -hmm. uh, as I recall, and maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me. There was a time when uh, kids were expected to do better than their parents. As a matter of fact, in some cases, they did so well that it was the kids who came back and helped the parents out with some uh, some financial help. But now right. we have this reversal here where it's parents continuing to help the kids who aren't doing as well as maybe the parents did when they were that age. Is this a wider cultural trend developing here? You know, it sure feels like it. And um, I, I, again, I, I just think it's it's hard, you know, with, you know, housing prices going up 30% or whatever, they've gone out, up in the last couple of years. You've got these millennials and Gen Ys that their crypto accounts have blown up. I mean, it, it's, you know, and, and let's face it, though, um, the millennial lifestyle is there's not a lot of budgeting going on and um, not not to, you know, knock that generation. But um, but I have kids in this thing and they're they're going out to dinner. They're going to happy hour with their friends. They're Venmoing each other back and forth. I, I highly doubt that they have any resemblance of a budgeting um, mindset. And so it kind of feels like, yeah, this is going to be this is a trend for sure. Mark, this is the result of a, a new survey that just came out. But tell me, do you have any clients, be them kids, be them parents, dealing with this this very type of situation? Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it's I, I I oftentimes joke if you have three, two or three kids, certainly three kids, one of them is going to be at least dependent on the parent in some regards. It's very rare for them not to, and and it's a it's a real challenge because for these parents. They want to see their kids succeed. They want to help them, but they know they're enabling them. And um, and it's and, you know, it's it's tough. It's tough. Love this is a difficult thing to do. Mm. So uh, that's why I, I do think you, you kind of have to set time frames and uh, make sure that there's no surprise. Otherwise, these conversations get really difficult and really intense if if they're, if you're not foreshadowing what's to come in the future. So does this mean I'm lucky because I don't have kids? I do, however, <laughs> I do, however, have a couple of cats. How much money should I be yeah. giving to the cats? 
That's a good. That's a good question. Uh, I I I don't know how much you should give the cats. I I, I had I did read a story recently that. Um, it was an article on estate planning for dogs and cats. Oh, there you go. I need that. There you go. Yeah. Rob, you just need to be kind to your cats when it comes to your will. Make sure that uh, <laughs> exactly. they're involved in the will. They have promised that uh, when I die, my body will not go to waste, that they will eat it. And uh, that way there's no funeral expenses or anything like that. Not to nice. mention how much food that uh, we're sp- we're spending on them. Cat toys, cat towers, and, and not just cats, but, you know, uh, as you mentioned, you know, estate planning for dogs and cats. You've got dogs there. People want uh, This is a serious question now. People oh. really want to take care of their pets. Okay. Right? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, forget the kids. Take yeah. care of the dogs and forget cats. Forget the kids. Hey, maybe, maybe we should just move in with our parents, right? I if think so. Alive. You know, I, I, I would like to do that. Unfortunately, I can't. <laughs> uh, Mark Rylance is a financial planner in uh, Newport Beach. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Well, that's it for uh, KNX and Death today. Uh, Chris Edens filling in for uh, Charles Feldman, who is off on a, Good I think evening. he's on a secret mission to maybe. some faraway land. Oh. And if he told us what he was doing, he'd have to kill us. He'd have to kill us. That's it for Thank In you, Death Robo. for uh, today. We'll be back Monday at 1 p.m.